I believe with all of my heart, and I've devoted my life to this belief, that the safest, most glorious place we can be is gathered together with our Bibles open. And that's where we're safe, and that's where the Lord blesses and, and keeps us. I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2, and while you're doing that, I'll pray for our time in the Word this evening. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at a truly glorious passage of Scripture that joins with so many others in the promise of a coming kingdom of Christ on this earth. We have just been singing these truths of the coming Savior, the coming King. And I pray, Lord, that by the end of this evening, our hearts long for the coming of Christ a little bit more, with a little bit more yearning, a little bit more desire, consequently resulting in more obedience to You, that we might be found pure and and worthy as walking with You, knowing that Christ could come at any moment. Turn our eyes toward this kingdom, Lord, away from the hardships and difficulties of this world and propel us forward into a time of glory. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Isaiah chapter 2, and we're beginning the Isaiah portion of the Old Testament Witnesses mini-series that I'm doing for our Millennium uh, series, longer series. And last week I just introduced Isaiah to you because Isaiah really is the grand central station of Old Testament millennial texts. And last week what we did was I went through almost every chapter of Isaiah except chapters 2, 9, 11, 24, and 65, which are the, the big central uh, areas concerning the millennium. And so now, tonight and for the next number of weeks, we get to look at each of those major chapters or, or some chunks of them. We're concerning ourselves with the first four verses of Isaiah 2 this evening. And I'll read those to you and then we'll begin looking at this text. Isaiah 2, verse 1, The word which Isaiah the son of Amoz beheld concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And before I move on from there, I just want to note that what we're about to read, it says Isaiah beheld this. He saw it. This is a vision. And so what we're going to see is 3D. This is what he saw, not just words. Verse 2, now it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Now you don't need to turn there, but I just might make a brief note that Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, written about the same time as Isaiah, contains nearly 
this identical prophecy, almost word for word. And so I won't go back and forth between them, but suffice to say that two different prophets said the same thing. We'll concern ourselves with Isaiah, though. It's interesting to me that right across from the General Assembly Building of the United Nations in New York, there's an inscription on what is called the Isaiah Wall. And the Isaiah Wall says, from a different Bible translation, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Of course, that's from Isaiah 2, verse 4. Well, the problem is, that's not going to happen on human effort, and certainly not because of the United Nations. It's been suggested that the motto of the United Nations should be standing proud for complacency or good intentions and bad results since 1945. The problem is, is as people are in the habit of taking Scripture out of context, they missed the biggest piece of the puzzle. That for Isaiah 2-4 to come true, we need a prince of peace ruling on the earth. Not a council of nations. We need one man. A righteous king. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 1 begins with Judah and Jerusalem placed on trial by God for covenant treachery. And God's people are found completely guilty. Punishment is coming. But God gives a future hope. Isaiah one twenty seven. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Right there, by the way, we see the doctrine of a remnant. The repentant ones will be the true Israel. And now in Isaiah 2, verse 1, verses 1 through 4, this is the fulfillment of chapter 1, verse 27. The restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of Israel, and future events are presented in somewhat backwards order. Because in verses 1 through 4, we have the restoration, the, the glorious kingdom that is to come. But then, beginning in verse 6, you have the desolation of Judah, the, the coming judgment. Now, this has happened already. This happened um, back uh, hundreds of years before Christ. But the results are continuing. Israel as a nation continues to be in spiritual darkness But verses 1 through 4, I I think, is so gracious of the Lord to present those first. Here's the happy ending. And then here's the bad stuff that's going to happen first. I think that we can get a concise, helpful summary from Dr. Matt Wehmeyer. He writes this about these four verses, and it's just a good little summary. If you just simply take the passage at face value, he says this, quote, Mount Zion will tower in prominence above all others. And the nations of the world will stream to Jerusalem to learn to walk in the way of Yahweh. The word of the Lord will go forth as the Messiah rules from Jerusalem, judging between the nations of the world and rendering decisions for the people. As a result of this righteous reign of the Messiah, the nations will live in peace and never again will they prepare for war. Now, as you might imagine, Isaiah 2 is quite popular for discussion in theological circles. Because for the amillennialist who believes that Israel as a national entity will never be restored again, or that the church is in some way functioning as the new Israel, with the promises to Israel being fulfilled now in this current age, Isaiah 2 presents some challenges. And so I want to just briefly tell you what our amillennialist brothers would say. There are basically two major views of Isaiah 2 for those that believe that the kingdom is happening right now on the earth. 
the first view, I'll call this the present reality view. The present reality view leans heavily, yea, even exclusively, on Hebrews 12.22. Hebrews 12.22 speaks of the church as having, quote, come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This view says that Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4 and Micah 4, 1 through 3 are already fulfilled and they're fulfilled through Christ and through his work. And that being the case, the conditions that I just read to you from Isaiah 2 are now present realities. And they would say it's the present reality because men and women of every people group are calling to the king of Mount Zion. In salvation, they're becoming citizens of the present kingdom. Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century he saw Isaiah 2 as a reference to the visible church on earth beginning with the time of Emperor Constantine in the early 4th century. I don't know how he came up with that, but that's how he saw it and many went along with that. Dutch theologian Johannes Cochius lived in the 17th century. And don't try to spell Cochius. It has more C's and vowels than I can possibly spell for you. But he taught that Isaiah 2 refers to the second coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, rather, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, now you're getting into the point of just reading things into the text. But, at the same time, he says that in this text, Jerusalem is a literal Jerusalem, but the picture of temple worship that we see here is symbolic of the spread of God's word to the nations in the church age. In other words, he tried to blend a spiritualized view of some elements and a literal view of others. Now, I bring up Cochias because historically he is extremely influential in covenant theology, which generally holds to the church as the manifestation or the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. So that is a, a classic case of starting with a theological position and reading it into the text of Scripture. And when you do that, you have to do all kinds of uh, hermeneutic gymnastics like he did. Well, there's some problems with the present reality view, and they're pretty obvious. The text says, All the nations will stream to it. To what? The head of the mountains, Jerusalem. Even if we were to say that it, Jerusalem, symbolizes the church or symbolizes the gospel, I, I think that we can't say honestly that the nations are streaming to the church to learn the ways of God. We struggle to fill churches. We struggle to get the attention of the world. We would also say that nations are not settling disputes at the judgment seat of Christ and therefore not going to war. This describes total international harmony. That's not the case ever. And certainly, the original readers of this text, they never would have envisioned Jerusalem as somehow representing the people of God in the church or a Messiah ruling from Jerusalem as actually being a Messiah ruling from heaven. And they certainly would have taken worldwide peace literally. So it's very important to always put yourself in the shoes or the sandals, in this case, of the original readers. If they wouldn't have ever come to a conclusion that we come to now, then that's usually a problem. The second major amillennial view, I'll call the final state view. And those are really the only two choices. It's either the present reality or the final state because amillennialism denies an intermediate kingdom. The final state view says that Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 are fulfilled in the eternal state. And in the eternal state, all the nations are participating in the worship of the living God. Well, there's some problems with this view 
First of all, being taught to walk in God's ways, that implies something. It implies unfinished sanctification, at least for some on the earth. Imperfection of still sinful people. This will clearly not exist in the eternal state. Messiah will judge between nations. He'll give decisions. What does that imply? That strongly implies conflict resolution. That evidences for us self-interest will still be a problem. Self-interest comes from pride. Pride is rooted in sin. Instead, this is an intermediate kingdom in which, as one theologian writes, sin will continue in the messianic kingdom, but the justice of the Lord will prevail and the nations of the world will live together in peace. So those are the objections to a literal view of Isaiah 2, and I'd like to put those in the rearview mirror. We've talked about that a lot in other messages I want to just look at the plain view of the text. What does it say to the person reading it and taking a plain reading? If we were boarding a tour bus, this focuses on Jerusalem. That's the focus of this text. And if we were getting on a, on a tour bus and I was the tour guide, I'd like to show you five landmarks that we see in this text about the kingdom, particularly in Jerusalem. The first landmark is the mountain of God. The mountain of God. Now, first of all, we have to talk about when this is occurring. It's occurring, verse 2, in the last days. What are the last days in this context? The day of the judgment on the earth. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, For Yahweh of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and high and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be made low. Zechariah 14 speaks of the day of the Lord where the Lord himself will go out and fight against the enemies of Israel. In fact, Zechariah even leaves instructions in Zechariah 14 to believing Jews to flee by the valley of my mountains. So there's the day of the judgment on the earth. There's the day of victory and peace on earth. Those are the last days. Isaiah 9, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. And most importantly, the last days speaks of the age of Messiah. The era of Messiah. Zechariah 14.9, Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name one. So the last days speaks of the judgment of on the earth, the days of victory and peace on the earth brought about by the age of Messiah on the earth. Now at the time of the restoration of Israel, Jerusalem will be the seat of the world government, the capital of the world. This is expressed in verse 2 as Jerusalem being the head of the mountains, lifted up above the hills. This is to be brought about by what the text says, the mountain of Yahweh will be established. What does that mean? Established. This particular verb means to be set up and prepared. And I want to take a little tour here about this because it's important. It's used in the Old Testament, this verb established, listen carefully, in connection with creation themes. With creation themes. Psalm 93.1. Psalm 93. 610, 1 Chronicles 16.30, each use the same verb to speak of the world being established in terms of being made, constructed, built, bricks being laid, that sort of thing. In, in other words, it's not just metaphorical. 
So Isaiah saying that the mountain of Yahweh will be established goes a step beyond a metaphorical use such as man's authority was established. That's a metaphor. It seems to be pointing more toward being built, being created, something physical happening at some level. And so the mountain of Yahweh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, will be established, built up, created, constructed as the head of the mountains lifted up above the hills. Almost every commentator just defaults to traditionally saying this is a metaphor. It refers to the majesty and the beauty and the importance of Jerusalem and all those things are true. But two important Hebrew terms used here, lifted up and hills, are always used in the context of physical height. They're never metaphors. But we don't have to rely solely on Isaiah 2. The idea of the mountain of God being elevated above all other mountains connects Israel's future with the doctrine of creation elsewhere. Psalm 48 verse 2 describes future Jerusalem beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now there's been debate about what is the city of the far north. The far north is just a way of saying it's higher than any other place. Psalm 48 was made years and years ago into a little children's song that my grandmother taught me and and she taught me beautiful in elevation. And I remember asking her, what what does the elevation mean? She just said, it means it's higher than anything. That's what the text means. An elevated mountain in which the king dwells. Another instance, Isaiah 14, 13, Satan is condemned by God, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Satan's desire is to rule, and that's associated with the mountain of the north and with creation, those those things put together. Psalm 93, verse 1, Yahweh reigns, he is clothed with majesty. Yahweh is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is established or created or built It shall not be shaken. God ruling the world is associated with the creation of the world, with something being built. Psalm 96.10 Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. He will render justice to the peoples with equity. Again, the theme of creation and God rendering justice to the nations all put together. Why am I giving you all this? Because it's not a metaphor. When it says that the Mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established, built, created, bricks laid up in that sort of physical fashion as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills. This is a topographical change. This is a change in the the actual earth itself. That Jerusalem is now center stage of a revitalized creation. And doesn't this make sense? If the king of all the kings and the lord of all the lords is going to rule, it's not going to be from the grapevine. It's going to be from the tallest mountain on planet earth. And it's going to be from his capital city. This Jerusalem and creation theme is put together directly concerning the millennial kingdom in Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 3, Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. And so these topographical changes are predicted directly. There's no sense to even see it as just implied. 
Revelation 16 describes the topographical changes to the earth in really incomprehensible proportions. Verse 18 of Revelation 16 says that the seventh bowl judgment will result in the greatest earthquake in the history of mankind. Verse 20 says that every island on earth and every mountain on earth will sink. In other words, there's some sort of equalizing or flattening of the topography. By the way, the mountains and the islands that we have now are primarily the result of the flood. The Genesis account of the flood would turn basically flat lands into ruptured lands with mountains, volcanic activity doing this as well. And so the Lord is now beginning to return the earth to a more pre-flood state. And some might even say, well, that can't be the case. The mountain of Jerusalem can't be the highest. Even the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem is already higher than the Temple Mount. Zechariah 14.4 says that the day Christ returns, the Mount of Olives will be split in two by a wide valley. It won't be the highest anymore. And in fact, it forms a valley to be the escape route for believing Jews. Zechariah 14.10 says it so clearly, all the land will be changed into a plain. P-L-A-I-N. But Jerusalem will rise. That's real. And people say, well, that's going to be a metaphor. You know, when you're climbing Mount Jerusalem someday, then you can say, all right, Steve was right. That's what the Bible says. What does that mean? That means that Jerusalem is a return to Eden. Eden was the highest mountain on earth. How do we know this? First of all, the worship of God always takes place at the highest place. We also know because the Garden of Eden is described as having four rivers all proceeding from one spot. When four rivers go in four directions, all going downhill, where are you? You're at the highest spot. This is Eden reborn. Isaiah 51.3 already says this. The first landmark on our little bus tour of the Millennial Kingdom in Jerusalem, the mountain of God. The second landmark we would come to, the house of God. The house of God, the temple Now let me tell you what Ezekiel 40 through 48 says you'll see with your eyes on this glorious mountain of of Jerusalem. And in fact, there's so much here that in a later series, we're going to spend some time on this. No temple like what I'm going to describe for you has been built after the exile, anytime since. It can't be a present day structure, certainly. But Ezekiel describes an altar, A temple and porch entrance, a holy place, an entrance of the most holy place, the most holy place itself, separate places in an outer court, priest's chambers, a western building, Levite's chambers, singer's chambers, a porch gate, an inner threshold, six little chambers, a main entry, a door of the gate, private steps, four tables, 30 chambers on three floors, and sacrifice preparation places. And that's just a a little summary. And yes, sacrifice in Jerusalem will be reinstituted. These are very different than the sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant. I won't spend a lot of time on this because we're going to take a lot of time on that detail. Uh, One of the most difficult, I think, interpreted problems in the Old Testament. So we'll take five or six weeks on it. But suffice to say, Ezekiel is clear about coming sacrifices. Isaiah 56, Isaiah 60, Jeremiah 33, and Zechariah 14 all speak of future animal sacrifices. Not in any way, shape, or form to replace or undo the sacrifice of Christ has nothing to do with that. 
And we'll wait till we get to that series to explain why. But this temple is magnificently detailed in Ezekiel. It has walls ten and a half feet high and ten and a half feet thick. It has an outer court 175 feet wide and 875 feet long. It's huge. It has side courts that are 175 feet wide. It has three outer gates and three inner gates. It has an inner court that's 175 by 175 feet. It has a back building that's 122 and a half feet by 157 and a half feet. And just to give you a few details, the outer and inner gates are decorated with palm trees. The outer court is paved and the 30 chambers all face into the outer court. There are 10 steps going up to the temple. The thickness of the door jams is given down to the inch. The 30 chambers are in three stories, 30 chambers in each story. Chapter 41 tells where to put supports for the side chambers and to make sure to not use the wall as a support. The temple itself is 175 feet long. Inside the vestibule of the court, there are windows, there are galleries. All the walls of the vestibule have a carved pattern, cherubim and palm trees. Each cherubim has two faces, one of a man, one of a lion. The double doors into each holy place is to be double hinged, meaning that each door folds as it opens. The outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces to the east, is reserved for the Lord God of Israel to enter. And once he has entered, it is to be closed and never used again because God walked through that gate, through that doorway. In other words, the description of this temple is so precise that it can be, and by the way, will be used as a building plan. Incredibly intricate models of this temple have been built and you can do it pretty easily because there's, there's no guesswork at all. Literally down to the inch, this can be modeled and built. If you want to know what the temple in the millennial kingdom will be, just soak in Ezekiel 40 through 48. The first landmark on our little bus tour of Jerusalem, the mountain of God, the second landmark, the house of God, the third landmark, the teaching of God. The teaching of God. The end of verse 2 says, And all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may instruct us from His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. All the nations will stream to it. The lead nation on earth is Israel. God is called the God of Jacob. This is clearly not the church. The church is never called Jacob. So God is being very specific here. God is fulfilling his national program with Israel. The temple, obviously a major component of that. But all the peoples of the earth are going to want to come to the temple. There will be a a worldwide regular occurrence to go to the house of the Lord. Uh, Zechariah 14 verse 16 says, Then it will be that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, will go up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. I think it's interesting that at the end of verse 2, Isaiah uses the imagery of rivers flowing to God's mountain. The the nations stream to it. We already know there will be a literal river streaming out of God's mountain. Psalm 46, verse 10, Zechariah 13 and 14, and then Ezekiel 47 all confirm this. So this imagery isn't coincidental. It's basically saying the rivers of the water of life are flowing out and the nations are flowing in. A glorious picture. 
I want to point out a, a little detail here at the end of verse 2, and all the nations, the definite article here, this is different than just nations. This gives an emphasis on a worldwide eschatological end-time situation in which every people group on earth is now represented. Certainly that can't be the case now. There's some important words used here in verse 3. The nations are to be instructed from His ways, learn to walk in His paths, and from Zion, His law, the Torah will go forth at the end of verse 3, the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? At one time, this was only Israel's privilege. Even in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul extols Israel because to them and them alone was given the the word of God. Who wrote our Bible? The Jews did. By God's determination. This used to be just for Israel. Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, You shall keep and do them, that is the law, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Here's the difference. Now this is a standard for all the nations. All the nations desiring the word of God. This doesn't mean a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant. It's just a general principle that the law of God will be desired, it will be followed. Why are the nations streaming to Jerusalem? Why are they coming? Well, the text gives two reasons. First, that He may instruct us from His ways. That He may instruct us from His ways. The nations come to Jerusalem to learn from the Master Teacher Himself. And just as the Israelites were once enamored by Jesus teaching on earth and many crowds of tens of thousands followed after Him, so the earth will have his teaching once again. And I sat down and I thought about, what do I want to hear Jesus teach? I guess the easier question is, what do I not want to hear him teach? It's, there's everything. I, I hope he does a recap, an explanation of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm preaching from the Sermon on the Mount right now. I would like to take notes and hear what I did wrong. I would like to know. I hope that he redoes the sermon that he preached to the two men on the road to Emmaus where he explained from all the law and the prophets everything concerning himself in the Old Testament. I want to hear that sermon. I hope he tells us in detail what the cross was really like. I hope he explains what really happened during that three hours of darkness. I hope he explains that. I hope he tells us what he prayed all night before choosing the apostles. I hope he tells us every single symbol in Scripture. I hope He resolves every single interpretive issue in Scripture that He may instruct us from His ways. Can you imagine what it will be like to gather before the King of all the kings and when He says, today I'm going to explain Isaiah chapter 2. You'll be excited. I'll be nervous because I know there will be corrections coming. How exciting will that be? The first reason that he may instruct us from his ways. The second reason that the nations will stream to Jerusalem. That we may walk in his paths. That they may walk in submission to the Lordship of Christ. To be instructed in living a life pleasing to God. I, I don't know if we can wrap our minds around this. This is a worldwide conference where representatives from every nation are coming together to learn how to walk in God's ways. What a world that will be. Now I do want to make an important distinction here. 
Zechariah specifies that these pilgrims are, quote, everyone who survives of all the nations. In other words, these are unglorified men and their descendants. In Isaiah 65, we know that the blessing of the Lord will be uh, returning long life to men. It will be said to be a shame if a man dies at the age of 100. And as I mentioned this morning, infant mortality rates will be zero. So there will still be the resurrected saints of the Old and New Testaments, that's including us, alongside the unglorified humanity. So really, there's two groups. Unglorified humanity, sinners are still being born, but the earth is characterized now as a Christian society in which the whole world wants to go worship Christ and to learn and walk in His ways. We know that this is an unglorified humanity because Zechariah 14 says that any nation that refuses to go up to Jerusalem will have drought and plague and punishment. And then glorified humanity in resurrected bodies, living alongside. And some will say that, well, that makes no sense. You, you can't have a resurrected human living alongside an unresurrected, unglorified human. Jesus did it for 40 days after his resurrection. We see an example of that. So what will the glorified, resurrected saints be doing That brings us to our fourth landmark. We have the mountain of God, the house of God, the teaching of God. The fourth landmark in our little tour is the government of God. The government of God. I I know this is difficult for us to grasp, but this will be a day where we glory in the government. We're, We're so thankful for the government. We're thankful for the government now because it's the one thing holding the earth back from total anarchy. That's what the Bible says. But it is difficult and it's, a, it's an act of the will and it's a duty to be thankful and to pray for our leaders, isn't it? But in this case, it'll be completely different. The government of God, the end of verse 3, for from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. This doesn't just mean that the law is being taught there and staying there. It means that the law, the, the application of the law to society goes outward goes forth. So, there will still be sinners. Again, this can't be the present state since Christ will be on earth and it can't be the final state since there's sin. And the Lord will be the ultimate judge of all with the perfect wisdom of the wonderful counselor from Isaiah 9. So, how will the law go forth from Zion? How will Christ institute justice across the earth? The glorified saints, and we will be included among those, will be the co-rulers with Christ on earth as His slaves, as His servants, to rule the unglorified descendants of the tribulation survivors. In Luke 19, Jesus told a parable that would make people kind of do a double take. And the parable was to explain the kingdom of God. The parable is about Himself and about His servants. He calls Himself a nobleman who went away to a far country to receive to himself a kingdom and then return. Before he left, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas, a a unit of money, and said, engage in business until I come back. And the servants were rewarded based on their faithfulness when the nobleman returned. Now, here's the shocking part. The the nobleman gives a, a shocking reward for faithfulness. To one, he gives a servant to rule over ten cities. That's like being a king. To another, he rules over uh, five cities. That's like being a governor. And of course, the one servant was a false believer and is condemned. But this is phenomenal. 
the reward for the faithfulness of the servants who serve the nobleman while he was away is to rule for him when he returns. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we endure, we shall also reign with Christ. Revelation 5.10 says that believers shall reign on the earth. Revelation 20 verses 4 and 6 is more specific that tribulation martyrs will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So what's the result, if we put these landmarks together, of the mountain of God with the house of God where God Himself is teaching and running the government of God? What's the result? Well, the final landmark on our bus tour, the obvious one, the peace of God. The peace of God. I hope you're praying for Israel every day. I hope you're praying, as Psalm 122 commands us, to pray for the peace of Israel, that it's coming. Verse 4 says, And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The result of God's word administered around the world will be peace and harmony. All disputes settled. Revelation 20 says that Satan will be bound during this time. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. The means of war are destroyed. There's there's no need for weapons to protect. Notice, by the way, the emphasis on agriculture. This is a return to an Eden-like world. People right with God again and enjoying the earth. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. What does that mean? Never again will they practice war. There's no need for a military. No more boot camps. No more, uh, no more military careers. No more military bases. There's no need for them. This is an unparalleled time of freedom from external danger. Messiah will put an end to everything that would cause danger or arouse fear. And the implications of this peace are staggering. We'll spend other messages fully on each of these elements, but just to give a a little piece here, poverty will be eliminated. What is poverty the result of? Poverty is the result of lawlessness in which people don't obey God's law to help the poor. And poverty is the result of governments controlling people in totalitarian fashion. That's always been the case. Property ownership will be available to all. Micah 4 says that every man will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The economy will thrive as peace reigns and people can go about the business of enjoying the fruit of their labors. So poverty is eliminated. How about this one? The enjoyment of life. I spoke of this this morning. We have to enjoy life as an act of faith. Now enjoyment of life will just be automatic. Life can be lived as God intended it, as His created people in the creation ruled by Him and co-ruled by us. And you might say, well, how are we going to enjoy life? I don't think it's that hard to imagine. Just imagine all the best things of life now and make them perfect. The very best things of life on earth and these will be yours to appreciate and enjoy. Poverty is eliminated. Enjoyment of life. How about justice always served? Justice always served. Never a frustration about injustice. Never a bad election. All rulers are appointed. By the way, all elections are eliminated from this point on. All rulers are appointed. A Christian society which is dominated by morality and good and right. 
And then, of course, the greatest part of the kingdom, access to our Savior and King face to face. We sing about meeting our Savior. This is our greatest hope and joy. Now that will be a regular reality. I, I can't even imagine that. Well, Isaiah is written very much to the Jew. Listen carefully. But especially to the future Jew. To the one who understands that what he has believed has not been enough. Chapter 1 gives the indictment against Israel. Chapter 2, 1 through 4 tells us what the future holds for the faithful. And the section ends, and I haven't read it yet because it's, it's, a, it's a glorious little verse. The section ends with this transition. A transitional verse that serves as the conclusion to verses 1 through 4 and the beginning, the introduction to verse 6 where judgment is coming. Verses 1 through 4 that we've walked through here basically say, look at all that can be yours if you will believe on your Messiah. If you will trust Christ. If you will become a Christian. If you will become one who follows your Savior. And now the call is issued. Verse 5, come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. And I won't go into this, but the very next section, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. What is this speaking of? Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. This is a warning, and it's an invitation. That Israel cannot continue as they have gone. They must come to faith in Christ. And as chapter 1, verse 27 says, Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant ones with righteousness. So what should be the answer for the one coming to faith in Messiah Jesus when the, what is the answer to this invitation? Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Here's the answer. This is the prayer of a Jew who must come to faith in Christ. And it's found, don't turn there, just listen, in Psalm 43, verse 3. This is the prayer of the one answering this call. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Here's the answer. Psalm 43, verse 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. What is the prayer of the Jew whose eyes are open to the gospel? Oh, let me make it to the holy mountain. Let me make it to the kingdom. The invitation is clear. Come, house of Jacob. You know, it's interesting. Isaiah is so filled with judgment and darkness, and yet if you look carefully, there are tremendous, tremendous invitations. And almost at the very beginning of the book, come now, and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the best of the land. That is an invitation to salvation and the result is you'll get to be in the kingdom. What a glorious, glorious truth. 
I, I genuinely, and I, I don't say this with any sort of sarcasm, I truly mean this. I genuinely feel sorry for anyone who takes Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 and tries to spiritualize it as something less than what it is. This is magnificent. This is something to be looking forward to. This is something to drive our hearts heavenward and to drive our hearts forward. The word of Yahweh from Jerusalem shall come. He will judge between the nations. Let me give you a little exercise. If you have trouble looking forward to the coming kingdom, if you're uncertain about millennium, read the news every day for a month. Then read Isaiah 2 every day for a month and you decide. Which one do you want? When I read the news, I can't run to my Bible fast enough to look ahead to this day. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain. What a glorious day. You'll be there someday. It's not a fantasy. It's not a story. You will be there. And you'll remember that in November, right before Thanksgiving in 2023, we talked about this. And look, there it is. There's the mountain of God. There's the house of God. There's the teaching of God. There's the government of God. All of these things. I pray particularly for you in a world that hates Christ and hates Christians more than it ever has in history. And I pray that your look forward gives you a sense of excitement and a joy and we join the Apostle John in praying, come Lord Jesus. Any day is fine. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. Our Father, that prayer is one that we pray that many would would pray that many would come to saving faith. We pray for the Jews on this earth today, Lord, many of them literally fighting for their lives. We pray they would turn to Messiah. We pray that they would see that the land that they have now is not the land that is meant to be. It is not the land of peace. It is not the land of shalom. It is not the land of the Prince of Peace. It is a land filled with decimation and war and horror. May they look ahead to the King of all the kings. Lord, I pray for any hearing this message this evening or online at a later time that they would yearn and desire to be part of this kingdom because those who will not bend the knee to the King of all the kings who will rule on the earth will be separated from God's people for all eternity. We pray for your grace and your mercy to save many. Bring us to the kingdom soon and we would join the Lord Jesus in his teaching us to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.